Praise the Lord. Father, we acknowledge your sovereign plan from eternity past, which has been fulfilled in time, in sending your only Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, the second person of the Trinity, into this world. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. That which spoke the world into being through the power of His creative Word made Himself low of no estate, even taking on the form of a servant to die in our stead to take our place on Calvary's tree, to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf, to be buried, according to the prophets, the word of old, for three days and three nights, suffering this on account of the wrath deserving our sin. And yet He arose. He declared victory over hell, death, the grave, Satan, and all that was lost in the garden. And this victory was signified and sealed by Him stomping, crushing Satan's head under His feet, on that glorious third day. Father, as we recount the mighty works of Calvary, the mighty uh, miracle of resurrection, the glorious ascendancy to the throne at the right hand of the Father in the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, this moves us to say that He is King, He is Lord, and we are His subjects. This moves us to say that He is sovereign and He is Lord over all the nations, over all historical eras, over past, present, and future. Our Lord Jesus Christ is Alpha and Omega. He is even victorious over our sin. We confess every saint in this room, made so not by any work of ours, but by His work alone, justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, the precious and pure substance, the only thing that can cleanse us from all sin. Now as we turn to your holy word, I pray that you would write upon our consciousness our convictions, our statement and confession of faith, and our corresponding obedience, the truth of the gospel of this great work of Christ on Calvary and beyond, that we might honor you, serve you, bring glory to your name, and point to the Lamb of God slain for sinners. Thank you for these moments that we have. May they be multiplied for your use and glory. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning... We have the great honor and privilege to turn to the Scriptures and to consider the work of Christ. Let us consider John 11 this morning, if you will. Turn with me to John 11, 4 through 44. Today we have a standalone sermon which, from which we will draw the significance, as the Spirit uses today's message, I trust, draw the significance of gospel realities from the account, from the record of the resurrection of Lazarus by Jesus Christ Himself. I'm sure if you're familiar with the story, but perhaps we can become even more familiar with its significance in the grand picture of Christ's work having come to earth to accomplish the will of the Father. Today's sermon is entitled, The Gospel According to Lazarus, or a secondary title or subtitle could be, Why Lazarus Rose from the Dead. Why did Lazarus rise? Why did Christ call forth from the tomb this man? And why was he unbound from those grave clothes unto newness of life at the creative word of his Messiah and Lord? The message that we receive from this miracle is prevalent, is available for us to review in the book of John, especially in its context, and we'll attempt to do that today. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to highlight the significance of resurrection in the gospel of John to highlight the significance of resurrection in the gospel of John. And Lazarus' story plays into this. With your Bible open and your heart as well, 
Would you stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's holy word, as we in reverence and fear behold these infallible truths? This is John 11, 4 through 44. Listen as the word of God is proclaimed in your hearing this day. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where she was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, "Let us go to Judea again." The disciples said to him, "Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again." Jesus answered, "Are there not twelve hours in the day?" If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she arose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he open the eyes of the blind man? also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, 
and a stone lay against it. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of God. You may be seated. We have a little more territory to cover in our passage today. In order to consider this event in its fullest, or this event in full, more or less, the account of Lazarus' death, the arrival of Jesus, and his subsequent resurrection. Now, this story occurs in a long chain of events in John's gospel. The revelatory and significant miracles of Jesus have reached a crescendo, a climax, a high water point. The works that John records in his gospel have purpose. They're demonstrating to us with a cumulative case, glory upon glory, grace upon grace, <coughs> miracle upon miracle, the power and the meaning of Jesus' work, His ministry, His person, and His, <coughs> and His redemptive work, ultimately, that will go forth in short order from this miracle, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The resurrection of Lazarus has preceded by, briefly, the following. First of all, the wedding of Cana, where water became wine at the word of Christ in chapter 2, followed by the woman at the well encountering the prophet, the Messiah, who told her all she ever, all uh, that, uh, uh, or in her words, who told her all these things about herself that no one could possibly have known if he didn't have supernatural knowledge. That's in chapter 4. Then there's the remote healing of the officer's son, whose fever fled at the seventh hour, though Jesus was not even in his presence, again in chapter 4. There's the healing of the invalid, infirmed for some 38 years. This healing took place on the Sabbath at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. We all recall the feeding of the 5,000, that miracle of food multiplication in chapter 6. Who can forget Jesus walking on the water in chapter 6, followed by the healing of the blind man, in fact, a man born blind in chapter 9. This leads us to chapter 11, our text today. Now we see Jesus Christ, the incarnate Savior, the Word made flesh as John has introduced Him at the beginning of His gospel. He's standing before the tomb of His beloved Lazarus with the mourners gathered round, and here our story unfolds. Lazarus, as we see in our text, was survived by his beloved sisters, Mary and Martha. His family is, of course, understandably stricken with grief crying out to Christ and their deep, anxious despair, perhaps desperate, perhaps even battling resentment, wishing they could rewind these events, get in their time machine, have Christ come a few days earlier 
If only he had been there, there's, there a brother might have been spared, is the attitude, the posture that they assume in their grief. They're crying out to him, deeply moved. Meanwhile, the enemies of Christ have grown more and more irate as the ministry of Christ continues to threaten their monopoly and power, and this event will prove to do likewise. Thus, everything at the end of John's gospel is coming to a head. The evil is demonstrably, it's showing itself to be more evil. The, and conversely, the power of God, the glory of Christ, is showing itself to be more glorious still. And there is coming a clash of the consequences of sin, a cosmic, historic, redemptive showdown. The curse of sin, death itself, and the work of Christ on Calvary. And thus, this signal miracle is leading up to the cross, and as such, it is saturated with meaning. Therefore, John might say, let him who has ears to hear, listen to the gospel of Lazarus. That is, listen to the good news of the miracle, the crowning achievement, if you will, the glorious revelation of Christ's ministry at this apex point before the cross, to this time, listen to the gospel of Lazarus, the meaning of why Lazarus rose from the dead. Let me give you a heading by which we can separate our text into three parts. The heading is, the account of Lazarus features. So the story of Lazarus features the following. Number one, a death by design. A death that was sovereignly ordered, a death by design. Verses 4 through 16. Number two, telling first responses. The responses of Mary, Jesus, and Martha to this event are instructive. Verses 17 through 32. Number three, Jesus deeply moved. There is, uh, Jesus is compelled by these events. He is moved. He is expressing something of the character of God in His very attitude, in His actions, in the steps that He takes, in what He expresses in these moments. The account of Lazarus features these three things at least. Death by design, telling first responses, Jesus deeply moved. We separate these sections by noting that each passage, each section that I've outlined has in it two ideas that, or an idea that is repeated in each. Notice verses 4 and 16 in our first section entitled, A Death by Design, in my message here. In verse 4 it says, but when Jesus heard it, namely the news of Lazarus' death, he said, this illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, excuse me, when he heard of a Lazarus sick unto death, he says, This illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is a statement of purpose. This will be an event by design, yea, even a death by design. Well, this idea is repeated in verse 14. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and then 15, And for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. This is an event that is sovereignly ordered, purposed, engineered, a death by design. As we consider this, how these, uh, each section has an idea that's reiterated, it helps us to focus our attention on the importance of this event. Why did Lazarus rise from the dead? And therefore, what is the gospel of Lazarus? Well, first of all, Christ answers this by pointing out this event will showcase the glory of God. 
This illness, he says in verse 4, does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. When Jesus says this illness does not lead to death, he means in the context it's clear, not death ultimately. Though there will be a death temporally, there will not be ultimate sentence of death in the case of Lazarus. And then there's a purpose for this. Why is this true? This is true because God has ordered these events to show forth His glory. It is the glory of God that has engineered the circumstances, circumstances such as we see them in our text today. And even more precisely, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. We have reference to the Trinity here. Jesus acknowledges the plan, the design, the perfect decree of His Father, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, and laying down from eternity past this sequence of events that will show forth His praise, that, reve- that will reveal His character to those who have ears to hear, to the mourners who have faith in Jesus Christ, to those who are in this circle of sweet fellowship who love Jesus, a Jesus who loved this family, a Jesus who set aside His work of ministry to take that several-day journey to go and visit the bereft, those who are grieving the loss of a loved one, and to intervene. In this, in those who are caught up in this story, in those who are witnessing these events, they will witness more than just the death and loss of a loved one. They will witness, yes, even more than prayers answered. They will witness the glory of God manifest through this death and resurrection by design. The glory of God, and even more precisely, the glory of the Son of God will be shown forth as a result of this event. What is the most common question that you hear when something horrible happens to someone? Somebody enters into a tragic set of circumstances, I'm sure you've been there, a loss of a loved one, a horrible sickness, an affliction unto death, a tragic turn of events, just everything, your world seems to fall around you. What is the most common question in moments like these that immediately rushes to people's mind? It's one word, three letters. Why? I heard someone say it, several of you. Why? Why did this happen? This is the most popular question that people ask. It is a question that if it is not answered or is not offered to the Lord uh, for His response, is one that keeps people in a state sometimes of debilitating unbelief and fear, and sometimes even a a, a delusion or almost an insanity. Why? Because we are limited in our understanding and our knowledge. And the question of why, when it comes to God's design for the big pictures of life, even including sorrows and suffering, hardship, yea, sin itself, the question of why is one that only one person can answer, and sometimes that answer we cannot understand, and sometimes, sometimes we are not willing to hear it, and sometimes we could not bear it if we were privy to the answer itself. In other words, we are mere humans, creatures, limited, frail, and we have, uh, and our limitations are painfully uh, evident in times like these, and so we cry out, asking why. It's the most popular question, may I submit, in times of trial and crisis and hardship and tragedy and atrocity. But is the answer as popular as the question? This question does not go unanswered, notice, in our text today. Jesus says twice in our text, this illness does not lead to death, 
for it is for. That word for indicates a purpose statement. It is for the glory of God. So that, again, indicating a purpose. So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Later on he says, and for your sake I am glad I was not there. This is better for you. So that you may believe. Again, so that, referring to the purpose of this statement. That God may be glorified and that you may believe. You see, some people continue to ask why because they will not accept the answer to the question. If the answer to the question is that God may be glorified through the suffering of your loved one, through the affliction that you endure, this hardship, trial, tragedy, this grief, this loss, this weight, if the answer is so that God may be glorified and His Son may be magnified, will you be content with that answer? If you are, you will find your faith being built. Furthermore, this situation befell this family and those who mourned and grieved so that they might believe. John chapter 9, I referenced briefly in introduction another miracle. 9-1, as he passed by, namely Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see what the disciples are asking? In a word, why? Why was this man born blind? Do you remember Jesus' answer? Why was this man born blind? Does anyone know? Jesus answered, verse 3, It was not, excuse me, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Again, this was a blindness by design. Just like Lazarus, this was a death by design. This was a sickness by sovereign engineering of the Almighty to showcase, to show forth the glory of God. These were moments that God had appointed from eternity past in order to show forth His power. I want to show you one more phrase you might have missed in this text that speaks to this same idea back in John 11, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Did you catch it? Because Jesus loved them so much, he waited two days, yes, indeed, until Lazarus was dead before he came to the place where he was. Is that a surprising statement? It certainly would be surprising to the grieving family. What did they respond when Jesus arrived? If you had only been here two days sooner, our brother would not have died. What they missed, initially at least, was this fact. Because Jesus loved them, he waited two days longer before he came to where Lazarus and his family was. And at this time, Lazarus had been dead now four days. Excuse me, rewind the timeline. Presumably, It would have been an answer to the people's prayer if Jesus had arrived before Lazarus had died. But the point remains, because Jesus loved them, He drug His feet, if you will. What does this illustrate to us? That the highest value, the most glorious answers to prayer, 
the most amazing realities, the most powerful display of God's glory often comes by way of deep sorrow, tragedy, difficulty, affliction, and trial. And because the Lord loves His people, He allows us to experience, to endure, to go through these things at times like this, that He might show us His greater glory, that He might build within us a yet stronger faith. If you are going through a difficulty or if you know someone who is, take heart, take comfort through your own struggles and sorrows and sufferings that God has purpose in it. You can affirm the glorious sovereignty of our almighty God when you realize that sometimes a delayed answer to your prayers is because God loves you. Because God loves you. The glory of God is seen in this death by design. Secondly, the priority of God's will is also featured. Notice verses 8 through 10. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? You see that Jesus, in endeavoring, in following the will of God, in obedience to the Father, in taking on this task, the next thing that God had ordained for him to do in his ministry, he did not come without risk. Jesus was risking his life, if you will, There were those who had pledged to kill him, those who were conspiring to put him to death, and now he was going right back to the region where they were plotting and scheming. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What is Jesus saying? Well, here Jesus is using a sort of parabolic statement, kind of a parable to demonstrate the priority of God's will. The disciples caution him against the threat or against taking the step, going there. They might have said, He's dead anyway. What can you do now? That would be a short sighted read, would it not? It would fail to recognize the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ Himself. A second reason, it's unreasonable to go here, because you will put yourself in death's, death's way. No reason, or there is no good reason to risk your life on account of this journey and this family. What irony, what irony, the, the disciple, uh, what the disciples said or their objections to this journey given the events that would unfold. Does it stand to reason that a death threat, that a death threat would frighten someone on their way to perform a resurrection? Is that not an irony? Jesus is going to ri- raise somebody from the dead? Oh, you better not do that, you might die. This is the man who has power over life and death, and he will demonstrate it post-haste in the case of Lazarus, and his disciples are telling him, you better not do that, you could die. This teaches us something. Oftentimes, our fears, our decisions, our plans, and the way that we order and arrange our lives fail to take into account the superior power of God. In other words, do we live our lives and make our decisions and plan and plot our uh, schemes and plans and so forth in light of the fear of death, the fear of man, or do we do so in light of the fear of God? I submit to you, this is the interpretation of Jesus' little parable. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. In other words, what is the true light? Is the true light reason? Um, I have weighed all the probabilities and by my calculations determined that this journey is not worth the risk. You can't do anything if you go there anyway. The guy's already dead and there's people there waiting to kill you. Waiting, having weighed the risk and reward ratio, we have determined it is unwise for you to go. That is not walking in the light of this world. 
That's walking in the night. He who weighs things according to the light of his own reason, according to the knowledge that his fallen humanity affords him, or his limited foresight and knowledge, or his scientific hypotheses, he who lives his light in light of this will ultimately stumble. This is the message. But he who lives, on the other side of things, in the light of this world, or he who sees, that is to say, in the light of this world, he will not stumble. Who is the light of the world? Children, who is the light of the world? Very, very good. God or Jesus Himself is described in John chapter 1 as the light of the world. If anyone walks in the day, if any, he will not stumble because he sees the light of this world. And so the message even here as Christ is training His disciples, and they will increasingly see this going forward, is don't live in light of your best reasoning. Live in light of the Word of God. Make your decisions and strengthen your faith and set your face to the will of the Lord in obedience of Him and following Christ because you are insufficient to plan otherwise. Can you see the end from the beginning? No. Are you the Alpha and the Omega? No. Should you fear man or should you fear God? God. Should you fear death? No. We are delivered from the fear of death, according to the author of Hebrews, when we consider that we serve a resurrected Lord. Therefore, proceed accordingly. Death by designs. There's a design even to teach the disciples this lesson. And then finally, we see that the purpose of the death of Lazarus is unto the faith of all who have eyes to see the miracle unfolding before them. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Jesus, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. See, they still didn't understand. Walking in the night, as it were, they were stumbling in their understanding. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he uh, meant taking rest and sleep. Verse 14, Jesus sheds more light on the subject. When Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Again, out of love for His disciples, Jesus says, I am glad that I was not there. Similar to His confession before, or similar to this parenthetical statement before, Jesus loved Mary and Martha, so He waited two more days before He went. In the same way, Jesus was glad. It was to their benefit. It was an ideal situation that Lazarus had died because they would soon see that he held within his very word resurrecting power. And when they saw, they might believe. But let us go to him, he says. And so in typical form, verse 16, Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Still walking in the dark, right? still considering that this is a death sentence given the forces that are aligned against Christ. And so Thomas says cynically, let's die with him. We might as well follow. We can't. He'll remain unconvinced. However, in contradistinction or in, in uh, contrast to Thomas's lack of faith and the rest of the disciples for that matter, it has been a matter of faith that God has the power of resurrection all through the ages. Those who do not take the Bible as the Word of God, and therefore their eyes are blinded to the truths that are there from page 1 to the close of the book of Revelation, they will deny that that resurrection itself is a concept that is seen throughout the Scriptures. This is not the case. Hebrews 11 tells us that faith in God's power to resurrect actually gave Abraham 
the ability to pass that great test of sacrificing his own son on the altar. We know that God provided a ram in his place. But Abraham knew that God, if God had not provided a ram, that nevertheless God had the power to raise his son from the dead. We find this testimony in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 18. And soon we will see a similar testimony in Martha herself. In other words, circumstances that place a demand on the God who has the power to resurrect are a test of faith. But when we realize under these circumstances that God will and has showcased His power to speak the dead back to life, how much more do we view God in light of this? How much more amazement rushes into our heart and mind when we see that He has the power to bring to life that which was dead in the grave? Number two, major point, the account of Lazarus not only features a death by design, but also telling first responses. Notice how Martha responds in verse 17 and following. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Notice verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I mentioned that each section has an idea that's repeated. In the verse I just read, that idea is repeated later by Mary in her response. Uh, we see this in verse 32. So turn over and notice, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw Him. She fell at His feet and said to Him, saying to Him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This statement is called a counterfactual. It's kind of an if-then statement. If the facts were different, the outcome would be different. That's the logic. If you had been here, then Lazarus would be alive. But that's counter to the facts. The facts are you weren't there, you weren't here, therefore he's dead. This is the initial reaction, the first response of both Martha and Mary, and no doubt many others, when Jesus finally arrives at the scene. Too late by their calculations. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, in spite of this, perhaps this attitude of despair, perhaps this attitude of wishful thinking, perhaps this attitude of defeat, nevertheless, Martha is a woman of faith. And she is featured not only in this attitude of sadness, discouragement, but notice the faith that comes through as she realizes who is standing in front of her. If she looked only upon her dead brother, yes, she would be flooded, no doubt, with the emotional loss, this crippling sense of defeat. Our brother, our loved one, there's nothing we can do for him now. But now as she turns her eyes from her dead brother in her mind to her Lord and Savior, we see her faith coming to the fore. She says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Did she believe? Yes, she did. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus will respond by saying that he himself is the resurrection and the life. And in this case, he will do her one better. In, re in returning her brother to her, 
even now in this life. She goes on, and Jesus says, Do you believe this, having confessed that He is the resurrection and the life? And she says to him, verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This kind of faith, this kind of miraculous confession of who Christ was, think of this. This was a woman who is in sorrow and grief, overcome with emotion, no doubt having just lost her beloved brother, uh, feeling like she has just missed by a hair's breadth the opportunity to have him in their presence longer because the healer, Jesus, was among them, though he could not make it in time. And yet she confesses who Jesus is in front of her. This reminds us of Simon Peter. In Matthew 16, 14, they said, Jesus has asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they responded, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, What do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So we see that a confession as powerful as this one and clear and precise as Peter confessed, that this man who stood before him was Christ, the Son of the living God. This was not something that Peter could just uh, come to by his own reasoning. But in fact, this had been revealed to him by the Lord himself. And likewise, we can assume that in the case of Martha, the Holy Spirit had, was upon her. When she cried, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. There is a moment in Peter's own life where this picture or where this is illustrated, this looking to the circumstances versus looking to Christ in dramatic form. Remember when Peter was walking on the ways, and as he looked to Christ, the power over the seas, the one who himself had just walked upon the water, Peter was stirred with faith and stood upon the waves. But when Peter focused upon the chaotic sea and the forces that filled his mere human heart with fear, that's when he began to sink. This is a picture similar to the one we see here when Martha looks upon the Lord Jesus Christ. She recognizes and her confession corresponds with the truth. You are the Christ, the Son of God. She confesses in faith, I know that He will rise again. And so Martha's faith is stirred as she looks upon her Messiah. The weeping has given way to a confession of confidence in Christ, her Lord. This is a telling first response. There is the response of Christ, of course, to Martha. This is in verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to her again, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, not just I have the power to speak life from the dead. Not just I have the authority or I speak on behalf of a greater one still who has the power to bring your uh, brother back from the grave. But instead, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Within Jesus' very being is the power and the authority and the person 
and the very circumstances necessary, if you will, to raise the dead back to life. This is, of course, foretelling of his own work on Calvary, such that the Bible will go on to say, all who are in Christ will share in his experience, and they themselves will be resurrected. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, all who are in him will be resurrected unto eternal life. Jesus, in foreshadowing his own resurrection, proclaims life in and of himself. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus goes on later, I believe in chapter 14, to declare that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Again, Jesus does not point and say, there is the way, like John the Baptist does. Behold the Lamb of God, go follow Him. He doesn't say, this over here or this disembodied idea, this concept, this notion, this religion, or this God over here is the truth. He doesn't say, this is the way of life as a great teacher, a moral sage, or a rabbi, like the people respected in that day. He says, I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want, if you want the assurance, the confidence of life eternal, if you want to realize the hope of salvation from your sins, if you want to realize and be resurrected, join your brother in glory one day from the grave, realize this, I am the resurrection and the life. Look no further, look to me. And so Jesus responds in this way, powerfully so. Mary also responds, telling first responses, Martha, Jesus, Mary. And as Mary is summoned forth, she rises quickly and goes out in verse 31. Others follow her. Supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there, they're kind of in tow. And then there's this contingency arrives. It says now, verse 32, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus saw her weeping. This was Mary's response to the Lord. This corresponds, it parallels another text. Turn over a few pages to John chapter 20. There is another Mary. There is another death. There is another resurrection. There is another, there is another occasion for weeping. That this a text that we have foretells, foreshadows, anticipates. And we see this in our worship text in John 20, 11 through 16. But Mary, a different one. She stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood, stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? He said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but when she did not know, uh, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you see seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She recognized her resurrected Lord. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing like the assurance of resurrection. There is nothing like the hope of resurrection 
to dry tears. The tears of Mary, the sister of Lazarus, were dried in that instance when Christ called forth to the grave, Lazarus, come out, and his, his sisters received their brother back from the dead. Likewise, Mary Magdalene at the tomb of Jesus, weeping for the loss of her Savior and Lord, is now brought to the recognition that He has risen. He has risen indeed. And the one she presumed to be the gardener, in fact, is her teacher, her Rabboni, her Savior, her Lord, her beloved Messiah. There is nothing like resurrection to dry the tears. We uh, reference or we recognize how Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Let me ask you this. When Jesus was in the tomb, after he had lain there three days, similar to Lazarus, four days entombed in his own grave, was there anyone standing outside the tomb calling forth, Jesus, come forth? There was not. Why not? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Because He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus resurrected on His own accord. There's some references in the Scripture that speak to the Spirit raising Jesus from the dead. There's other references that Jesus Himself rose from the dead of His own accord. Suffice it to say that the Godhead itself, the Trinity, was responsible solely for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in this event, He is not unbound by a group of disciples, no. But when He is discovered, He had unbound Himself, as it were, and His grave clothes were carefully folded. He needed no one to move the stone away. No, He had moved the stone away of His own power. He is the resurrection and the life. No guards could keep Him dead in the tomb. Their swords and spears were of no account against His resurrected, glorified body. They shuddered in fear and fell back, and by the sheer mercy of God, escaped judgment unto death as our Lord and Savior, Messiah, and resurrected one rose never to die again, having defeated death in the grave, declaring victory over the same, even the wiles of sin and the effects of the fall. Hallelujah. This was the response of Jesus to death and the response of Martha and Mary to the knowledge to the uh, gospel of Lazarus, as it were, to the reason for these events taking place, it begins to become clear as the, as the account transpires. Final point this morning. The account of Lazarus features a death by design, telling first responses, and finally, Jesus deeply moved. Again, two times in our text, as we begin to see these events come to a close of this chapter, we have reference to Jesus being deeply moved. Verse 33, Jesus saw her weeping, namely Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Later, verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and he stood before it, commanding, take away the stone, commanding Lazarus come forth. And so he did. What does it mean that Jesus was deeply moved? If you go back to the original language, there is an intense stirring of violent, if you will, of aggressive almost. Words fail me to describe it accurately, but Jesus is expressing deep, passionate, heartfelt response to these situations. 
And the first is compassion for those who are grieving. Those who are grieving, yes, in part, their grief was short-sighted, as we have said. There's nothing like a resurrection or the hope of resurrection to dry the tears. Nevertheless, Jesus expresses a deeply moved compassion to those who are grieving. Jesus recognizes the sin and, the, uh, and its consequences that are involved in this world, and He expresses in this way the heartfelt, passionate response from the Lord Himself in extending this compassion. This illustrates beautifully the full dimensions of the Godhead. Some argue against the sovereignty of the Lord, saying that he have, if He has indeed ordained everything from uh, the beginning that takes place in time, then God, God must be some impersonal concept, some robotic uh, equation that determines all events that take place in time. This is not the case. Not only is God sovereign, but He is also deeply personal. He is involved in our affairs. He hears your prayer, your, prayer, your pleas, your cries. He responds with heartfelt compassion for those who have experienced loss. Hebrews even goes on to say that he has shared in some of this, in suffering as a man, though without sin, in his incarnation, revealing to us beautiful dimensions of the nature and character of the Godhead. And what hope there is that a God who created this world, knows the end from the beginning, has ordained every sovereign event, would stoop so low in this incarnation to take on flesh, to become a man, to communicate his care and concern for us, even though many times in our sorrow, ultimately speaking, we don't even have that great of reason to be grieving if we recognize the power of God that will soon wipe away our tears with resurrection. Nevertheless, Jesus now, through the power of His Holy Spirit, extends His compassion and His comfort to the bereft, those who grieve through great personal loss. Jesus is not only deeply moved on account of those weeping, though, He is also deeply moved for another reason. Verse 38, He's deeply moved again. He comes to the tomb, it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. I submit to you the attitude of Jesus in this circumstance changes from one of compassion to anger. Jesus is expressing a holy wrath a holy anger, a holy passion against sin and its consequences, the plan and design of Satan. As Jesus looks upon that chamber that holds this dead man, he sees the symbol of what was lost in the garden now falling upon those who suffer in the first Adam, the consequences of their sin. He sees the wiles of Satan. He sees the plan of the enemy, and it gets him angry. And he responds in a forceful way. He is taking dominion over the servant, he is, serpent. He is lifting up his heel. He is about to crush the serpent's head. This takes place over the course of his ministry, culminating in his defeat of Satan on Calvary. But no less is this moment part of his head-crushing activity when he commands the stone be taken away and with a loud voice cries out, Lazarus, come out. Jesus has declared war on Satan. And he has assembled his forces in a victory parade that will defeat and rout the enemy such that none of his minions will be left standing at his final judgment. 
there will be no trace of the consequences of sin among his own by the time he is finished with his war campaign. Indeed, the last enemy will be defeated, and our warrior is motivated and passionate. He will not rest until every one of his enemies are placed under his feet. There ought to be real fear of God that is inspired by Jesus' deeply moved attitude toward these circumstances. That is to say, if you are part of the problem, if you yet remain in your sin, there you are facing an angry God. However, if that angry God is fighting for you, if He is defeating enemies on your behalf, you can be confident that He will defeat the consequences of sin for you, that you will not stay in that grave, that resurrection will dry your tears, and that your future hope and glory, the new heavens and the new earth, is absolutely assured. Who can stand before the one who has the power to raise the dead back to life? Not even Satan himself. Jesus cries, enough, as He shouts, as the Creator of heaven and earth and the dead are resurrected. Resurrection is the ultimate declaration of victory over sin. Think of it. We've been studying Genesis. What are the consequences of sin? What did God say Adam and what happened to Adam and Eve because they sinned, children? What happened to Adam and Eve after they sinned? They got shut out of the garden and God said you will surely die. That is correct. So this is what happened because of sin. Now, If death is the ultimate punishment because of sin, then it stands to reason resurrection is the ultimate declaration of victory over sin. If you can kill death as it were, you have killed the consequences of sin. And this is the message of the resurrection of Christ our Lord. It's the message of His resurrecting power evident in Lazarus coming up from the grave. Final point, exercising resurrection power. Turn to John 1. John 1, you remember these words. I'm sure many of you have memorized them. Jesus is introduced to us by the author of the record in in chapter 11 in these words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Why did Lazarus rise? What is the gospel according to Lazarus? It is an incident, it is an event, it is a miracle in the ministry of Jesus Christ that illustrates these words I've just read. In the beginning was the Word that is Christ, and Christ as the Word spoke all things that exist in to, into a reality in the first place. He's a creator of life, the, the maker of heaven and earth. In Him was life. Therefore, in Him is new life, new creation. You and I are born again by the power of Christ's Word, speaking life out of the darkness of sin. And in Him is not only life, but light. And those who were once in darkness are called forth from the grave, from the shadows of their sin, from the darkness of our condemnation, unto Awareness of Him as our Savior and Lord, our Messiah resurrected, our Messiah resurrecting the glorious revelation of Jesus Christ. He is exercising His resurrection power, His life-giving power. The Word made flesh is standing outside the tomb, and we see Him in this instance, John eleven forty one, 41, and they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up His eyes and said, Father, 
I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, and that I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the voice again. Brothers and sisters, this is the voice of the creator of the universe. The Lord of new birth calling forth life from the formless void. This is the one with the power of resurrection in his very being. And he would soon demonstrate this resurrecting power even from his own grave. What does this mean for us? The season as we often recognize these things and as we have seen in our scriptures the meaning of resurrection. Let me close with a quote from the great commentator John Gill. He says of this passage, He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Believers in Christ die as well as others, though death is not a penal evil to them, that is not a punishment. Its curse is removed, its sting is taken away. Being satisfied for by Christ, being satisfied for by Christ, and so becomes a blessing and privilege to them, and is desirable by them. But though they die, they shall live again. Their dust is under the peculiar care of Christ. And they shall rise by virtue of union with Him, and shall rise first in the morning of the resurrection, and with peculiar privileges, or to the resurrection of life, and with the peculiar properties of incorruption, power, glory, and spirituality." So likewise, such that have been dead in sin and dead in law, under a sentence of condemnation, as all mankind are in Adam and being in a natural and sinful state, estate, and as the chosen of God themselves are, yet being brought to believe in Christ, that is, to see the excellency and suitableness of Him as a Savior and the necessity of salvation by Him, to go out of themselves to Him, disclaiming their own righteousness, venturing their souls upon Him, give up themselves to Him, trust in Him, and depend on Him for eternal life and salvation. These live spiritually. They appear to have a principle of life in them. They breathe after spiritual things. They see the Son of God and behold His glory. They handle the word of life. They speak the language of Canaan and walk by faith on Christ as they have received Him. They live a life of sanctification and justification. They are manifestly in Christ and have in Him an interest in and have him an interest in him and so have life they live comfortably they live by faith on Christ and his righteousness and have communion with him here and ex- and expect to have and shall have eternal life hereafter brothers and sisters saints and members of the household of God this and so much more is the meaning of why Lazarus rose to demonstrate to us Our God who has resurrecting power and in the power of His resurrection has granted to us hope eternal, such as John Gill has summarized and the rest of the Bible elucidates. Let us close in prayer this morning, thanking the Lord for His great revelation to us. Thank you, Father, for these words that we have read and press them deep upon our souls. And may they move us to faith and godliness. May they encourage and equip your saints to stand, Lord Jesus, in light of these powerful truths that we serve a risen, a resurrected and ascended Messiah, that we will be resurrected with Him one day, that we need not fear death, we need not fear man, 
Teach us to live in light of these truths. Lord, as your gospel has been featured in our text today, I pray that it would be featured also in our hearts and in our confessions and in our actions. And if there be any lost among us in the hearing of these words, I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would use the power of His spoken word to call the dead to life, the spiritually dead in sin to new life in Christ, that they may repent of their sins and that, and they, and that they might believe that Jesus Christ is their Savior and Lord, and that they might join us one day in the final resurrection where we receive our glorified bodies and join Christ, ruling and reigning with Him forever and ever and all eternity. In His name we pray, amen.